Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. We know that it that Bitcoin's success necessarily comes at the expense of state revenues. All right, so Bitcoin is States generate the revenue via inflation and taxation. Once you're holding Bitcoin, you're immune to inflation, which in the US in 2020, it was 50-50. We printed 4 trillion, we taxed 4 trillion. So let's say the revenue model is 50-50, roughly. It tends to become more heavily inflation-based over time, but we'll say 50-50 for now. So Bitcoin neutralizes 50% of state revenues in this kind of simplistic example. Then people are holding their money holding their capital rather any money that's difficult to tax. It's very hypermobile, can't be confiscated, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say it puts downward pressure on the other half of state revenues. So Bitcoin's economic success is detra- it's a detractor to the state, to state revenues. So we would expect governments to shrink as Bitcoin grows. And this, the, to your earlier point, this is also going to change the incentives towards more localized violence because now in theory, at least you'd have less protection from the state because they're shrinking and you'd have potentially more reward from these $5 wrench attacks. Do we then end up back in castles? <laughs> is, is, is that the Citadel model? Is that what we're going towards here? Yeah. We're going full circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, now it's it's a great question, right? Because yes, government uh, uses some of the stolen money uh, to to institute certain uh, institutions for our protection, um, and uh, arguably they do a very horrible job at achieving the ends that they seek to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of course, with all the inefficiencies that come in socialism, um, so. Arguably, yes, the service provided by government officials will 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 decrease. Now, as long as there is a opportunity for new market participants entering that marketplace uh, and providing a service um, to individuals, in this case, protection service, physical protection. Mm-hmm. So in other words, as long as there is no monopoly, as a monopoly is being defined as a government privilege uh, and, and limitation for new market participants to enter. Um, 
as long as that is available, then as the services provided by the state will decrease, assuming that individuals actually do value these protection services in the first place, then they will pay private uh, protection services, which will then take over uh, that um, yeah, that protection at the actual rate that was bartered for, right? So, so finally, efficient, um, you know, efficient private property calculations and and you know, voluntary mutual beneficial exchange, and all of the good jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's going to be very difficult to make an a priori estimation of how the future of the very complex network of human action will evolve, right? That's why uh, this is a. a uh, a backwards looking science, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, there stands nothing in the way of the theory of a, a free competition in, in security services. And I'm making a quite comfortable argument that the service provided by free entrepreneurs will be immeasurably superior to the quote unquote security services that are being provided nowadays. Um, so even though the the cost for some selective individuals with a high need for uh, security might increase, I would still argue that in the uh, collective economy, the cost for protection will decrease on a macro scale. Hmm. So one more tack on question about that, because the way I understand the evolution of government historically is that it is an inherently centralizing natural monopoly, right? So when any you're, you're paying someone to protect you from localized violence, but in the event of conflict between protection providers, the victor will always be favored, right? Everyone, everyone, no one ever wants to have the second best security to put it simply. So is even if we get to this private protection services market competing with government protection services, does that get us, do we end up back in some kind of natural government monopoly as a result of that? Or are we moving more towards a wild, wild west style sovereign individual future in your estimation? I'm not, not going to hold you to it clearly. I, I would take the point of Ludwig von Mises here. Uh, he wrote a great book. Uh, little pamphlet called uh, the middle of the road leads to socialism addressing exactly that type of question can we have a little market intervention uh, without having the dire consequences of full-out socialism Mm. Um, but what he argues is that as soon as you establish for example price controls Mm -hmm. right uh, in in one uh, consumer good then this also affects the price calculation of all the production goods uh, that were in the deep production stages of of this this venture, mm. and of course, all uh, because of the market economy, and for m- almost any somewhat sophisticated good, uh, the the network of exchange being that vastly complex, as as seen in the in the SAI pencil, uh, that mm. it will always lead to shortages, and then once you are confronted with the first shortage. You have two options uh, at your disposal. Either you gain, gain back the or, or rate, uh, give back the property rights to the individuals and let free entrepreneurs make the decisions of pricing. Right? You go back to a laissez-faire free market economy, mm-hmm. option A. Option B, 
double down on the tyranny and now in enforce uh, price uh, like maximum prices for example uh, on all the production goods involved as uh, involved as well right and all of those market interventions will have again a ripple effect throughout the economy leading to more shortages and we're at the next uh, question, right? Conflict over resources. So who gets to use it? Well, if there will be more socialization and, and more centralization and more theft of property, that will just continue the vicious circle to lead deeper and deeper until we have an all right uh, uh, socialization and a, a full slavery mandated um, in this concept. So yes, the middle of the road does lead to socialism. And if, if we want to have a, a truly free market in the long run, then I am convinced that we need to establish certain principles and never waver from them. Right? Mm. Uh, that's, that's what a priori reasoning, that's what axiomatic deductive reasoning um, is so useful. Yes. Uh, the individual acts. I know that for 100% uh, to be, uh, not, like I cannot come up with a counter argument to that point. Right? That's uh, right. That's as good as it gets for me. Um, yeah. And uh, when that is, when I accept that one truth, well, everything else logically follows. Uh, and I, I cannot waver on my assumption that the individual does not act. That, that doesn't, I cannot even make that proclamation that I do not act. Because just by me making that proclamation, right, I, I act. Yeah. Right? So this, yeah. this is yes. the... Um, Mises had a great German word for this. The I think he calls them the ultimate givens in English. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, the ultimate givens. That was in English. I, I forgot it in German, but it was very beautiful. By the way, uh, Mises, for a, a not native English speaker, has a breathtakingly high quality English. Right? Oh, it's, 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 it's brilliant to read. But his way of thinking is just purely like, it's so well expressed in German language. It's incredible. Hmm. So uh, actually getting the, the privilege of reading Mises in, in original language is something I'm very happy about. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, he, may, he inspires me to want to learn German just to see how he handles <laughs> The way he handles English isn't like any author I've ever seen. It's so impressive. You would think he's like the, the master of English or something, but that's not even his native tongue, right? He learned it much later in life, I believe. And yes, and funnily, he uh, he learned it a lot, or he, he was a prolific writer. And then later when he emigrated to New York, um, he also gave a lot of lectures in English. Mm. But they were barely understandable for the audience mm. because of his heavy Austrian and German dialect. Mm. And so his, his speeches were completely underwhelming, especially mm. when you compare it to Keynes. Right, who was this British gentleman, mm. very, very prolific in, in speaking. Right. And he, he completely won the public favor uh, because of his rhetoric skills, not yes. because of his economic skills. Right? They, they, they are nothing compared to the, the grandiose monument that Mises constructed. Yes. Uh, but Mises just failed to articulate it passionately. Right. Um, even though re uh, like recounts of his, his seminars in German are are of, of like utmost excitance and and yeah. and like motivation of the, of the yes. people attending i i think that that his language barrier in spoken form was yeah. a big hindrance of his success mm. during his lifetime interesting yeah it's funny that um yeah rhetoric man rhetoric is dangerous and it's 
one of the most effective tools wielded by politicians. Um, and Mises makes the great point at the end of human action that it's the court of public opinion that ultimately matters for implementing these ideas. This isn't, it's not as simple as capitalism just being more useful than socialism. You actually need people to believe that and live that out for it to work. Um, so there's very much this battle in ideological space. And, you know, I hope what the work we're doing here is helping to contribute um, towards pushing that one direction. So, okay. I, I know I promised one last question, but I have one more. <laughs> I, so the, the problem in my mind is we have enterprises that are purveying protection of property, but by being protectors of property, they're wielding weapons and violence and all of these things. They're specialists in violence effectively. So this empowers those purveyors to profitably aggress against the property of others. So the more um, power they have, martial power, I guess you would say, the more of an incentive they have to just go out and take property from others, right? The cost benefit keeps going in their favor, let's say. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm back to Bitcoin being like, there's no answer to the state's overgrowth and predation, systemized predation on property without something like Bitcoin. Um, I, 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 I don't... I don't think that you could ever make a, a blanket statement that there is only one solution to a problem. Mm. Right? That's part of the beautiful thing of being human is that we are crazy creative creatures that mm. come up with, with new or at least uh, unused um, ways to solve the problem. Right. So to say that Bitcoin is, is the only uh, mm. uh, solution to the problem is again a bit presumptuous because after all, who are we? And yes. we probably did not discover the Holy Grail here. Right? Let me say the only one that I see then, because you're absolutely right. It, uh, yes, I, I, or I, I, I might say it's it's maybe the the least costly option that I see, or the least violent option that I see. Mm. Um, I like, I mean, sure, we could go out, you know, all out civil war and pitchforks to the parliament. Uh, I would maybe be in front line here, probably not actually, <laughs> but. Um, like, you know, there are many ways that we could go about systematical change. Um, and, you know, just alone, for example, the political means is, is one of the potential options, right? Let's just vote Robert Breedlove to, for president and he's going to solve all our problems, right? M maybe that will work. And many, many people have tried in the past. Mm. The, the, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it's, you know, it's this option that, that cannot be vetoed, so mm. to say. Right, mm -hmm. um, like every political process somehow can be avoided in a sly roundabout yes, way. Right, uh, right, right, right. But but Bitcoin is an option that is there, mm -hmm. and governments don't have the power to take away that option for people, and that's a first. Yes, right. The censorship resistance um, uh, on on an extent like this that's something new. Right? Especially when you combine it with the censorship resistance of communication technologies in the first place, right? Um, or, or at least the widespread availability of them. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, yeah, Bitcoin changes a lot of things, but 
I'm I'm still I'm still cautiously optimistic. I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm not yet sure, and that's just because you know maybe on 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 the on the more macro level, I just see most people not understanding what sovereignty, what property, what freedom means, and when there is a mass ignorance of such fundamental truths that in the past we could hold to be self-evident, common sense, knowledge that everyone has. Um, That is no longer the case. So I'm not sure if in such a low state of consciousness on the macro scale, that freedom is attainable. Um, I do think that people need to want to be free, to have that eternal fire to protect themselves, even in the face of tyranny, right? and to not cave down and, and, uh, and, and to follow the orders given by the authorities. Mm. I, I think people fundamentally need to treasure freedom um, very deeply. And I, for many reasons, that, that is no longer the case that much. However, I think that Bitcoin, where, where Bitcoin comes in in this picture, is that Bitcoin is that kindling spark that, that inflames the, the fire for liberty in the heart of men. It's that kind of first taste of freedom, uh, kind of like a drug dealer, you get hooked up for free for the first time. And then you're like, whoa, what was that? And then there's no more. going back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I, th- I think this is what Bitcoin achieves. That finally, people start asking the question of why do they get to print all that money? Why yes. do they get to steal from me? Right? And why can I not defend myself against that? Yes. Um, and, or, and then ultimately, are there ways that I can defend myself against that? And are there ways that they can stop me from defending myself? Mm. And once you have reached the quote-unquote, end of the rabbit hole, although I have not yet found it, <laughs> then, then, then you realize that, yeah, uh, this is censorship-resistant private property. Uh, this yeah. is something that they cannot take. Yes. Um, and I want that. And now I understand what is possible with that. Yes. Right? Once, once you stream sats over the lightning in a censorship-resistant way to an anonymous podcast host or something, yeah. right? that's, that's a power that you will not give away, especially yes. if you're an, an eight-year-old uh, guy in, in Timbabwe or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> excellent points. Um, I believe it was in this book. I'm reading a lot of books at the same time right now, so I could be wrong, but where Rothbard makes the point that all of the foundational documents to governments throughout history, you know, like the Magna Carta, the American Constitution, they've all been designed to circumscribe the authority of government, right? Saying these are the limitations on government. You know, we have to wield this force of violence to preserve peace and property. But here are the limitations to the wielding of that, that apparatus of violence. But he made the point that because they're just documents, they're all revocable, right? Over time, they just, you know, stretch this rule, bend that rule, add this amendment. And before you know it, they're not the spirit of the agreement. Uh, The implementation of the agreement has diverged from the original spirit of the agreement. And it's almost like Bitcoin 
and this is just an analogy, I suppose, but it's kind of like an irrevocable foundational document. It has these very fundamental property rights inscribed in, into it. And then it it's, you know, I don't want to say unchangeable, but it's it's structured in a way that all of the participants are incentivized to preserve the integrity of the rule set versus the, the, the foundational document, documents for government is the reverse. The governments are actually incentivized to kind of try to stretch out the rule set to their favor more and more over time. So I don't know, just kind of thinking out loud on that one, but maybe it would be helpful since we're very uh, mired in this concept of freedom to define freedom and or liberty. Are they the same thing? How do we think about them, you know, quantitatively, qualitatively, et cetera? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think to to dismantle that uh, at, le- at least slowly is is also the definition of free will. Uh, I think this mm-hmm. comes inherently with the question of freedom. Uh, does it does it even exist, right? Um, and uh, or is everything just deterministic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, are are we all just rocks after all? Uh, and I think both are true. Um, you have the freedom to choose which means to utilize in order to achieve your ends. Uh, so you can actually choose twice, which ends to pursue, which mm-hmm. problems do you actually have, and how do you want to go about solving them? Mm-hmm. Right? Those are the two choices that you have, and they are inherently free and, and yours to make, right? subjective individual preferences. Mm-hmm. This is nothing that can even be dictated by others. Right? I cannot make Robert like bananas more than steak. Right? That's mm-hmm. just not in my power. Um, Robert might actually change his preferences by, you know, just sheer force of will mm-hmm. or, you know, ethical concerns or whatever. There are many, many things that you can change your own preferences, um, but very difficult for others to do that. Um, and so, so that's, that's what freedom is. But you are not free. Um, to you know, leap the ocean. That not in the sense that you cannot formulate that as the highest goal that you want to fulfill, but rather that you literally don't have the power, you don't have the means available to to satisfy your end goal. And so that is is where freedom is limited in in the power that we have. And where we're also not free is to escape the consequences of our choice. And so when you step off a cliff, the consequences that you will fall, and there is no way that you can avoid it after stepping off the cliff. And if you want to avoid it, then don't act. But once you choose to act, the consequences of those actions are deterministic and unavoidable. And um, so freedom of will, again, means to to be able to choose your ends and the means to, to, to reach those ends. Um, and it's it's limited by the consequences of of the reality of those actions. Um, where then liberty comes in, in a sense, and I'm not sure if that definition holds, but liberty might be more a a granted privilege by someone else, right? You are at liberty to enter my house, um, meaning I grant you the privilege. To enter my house, right? I I, I invite you in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
something like this. Uh, I, I think that was one of the, the working definitions. Um, and I, I think this was actually put out by Rail, which is an anonymous uh, uh, writer uh, and, and philosopher who, who brought up that theory of uh, Vanu, uh, living voluntary, not vulnerable. Right? So he, dif he differentiates between being free and being in a state of Vanu. Right? Uh, and specifically, Vanu being not that uh, you are necessarily free to choose, right, or or have abundance in in your means, but rather that there is an absence of coercion or the initiation of force from another person against your own property. Right. So if when you are not vulnerable, when you're not exploited, right. Um, that is a state of vanu instead of a state of, of freedom or liberty. Uh, and I think that's a, a very, very interesting metric to look at uh, because when, when focusing our level of analysis, not on freedom, but rather on, on um, coercion, and right, we can also establish a, a success metric, for example. Right? So not just how much free are you, that's a very vague question, but the question of when was the last time that you were stolen from is an answerable one. And the longer the so-called mean time to harassment, as Rayo puts it, the better. And so this is a very actionable insight uh, as, as a freedom strategy. And I think that's why it's noteworthy here in this definition. Interesting. Yeah, it's... Um, where does optionality weigh into this? So I think of the man born into the original state of nature, right? This is, uh, what does Rousseau say? That man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains, something like that. And Mises makes the point that that's not exactly true because the man born in the you know, pristine state of nature is really subject to all of these scarcities of existence in addition to you know, running into the guy that has the bigger weapon or is more you know, uh, better skilled at combat. So it seems like kind of the point of trade and economics and, you know, capital accumulation, wealth accumulation, if you will, is to increase the number of options we have, right? So we're dealing exactly. with this limitless onset of problems, creating more options for ourselves to deal with them. And then in solving certain levels of wants or satisfying certain levels of wants, we're actually opening ourselves up to new, uh, higher, different types and uh, other wants that are unsatisfied. So if you get shelter and food and water, all of a sudden maybe you want some dessert or chocolate cake or a fishing rod, you know, whatever the thing is. So it seems to me like in, in at least the economic sense that optionality may be a way to quantify or qualify freedom. Like the more options you have, the more free you are. Is that something that weighs into your thinking on freedom or liberty? I think it's it's interesting to look at it like that, but it's still very vague, right? Because it's it, it's very fractal. You know, the longer you think about potential ends, the mm. the more you can come up with, right? The, um, and there there are infinite number of substitute goods right? mm -hmm. in 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 many aspects, at least when you widen your filter. Um, so that that just means that because there are ultimate so like ultimate problems to be solved or unlimited problems to be solved 
unlimited end goals to be reached. Mm -hmm. And because there are basically infinite roads that lead to that end conclusion, um, I think in almost any situation, you will find yourself with a plethora of options. And I'm not sure that having more options is uh, like linearly a better thing because there might be something like too much to choose, right? When, mm. what, because after all, every choice is, is some, you know, decision-making power. And if right. you have to choose everything all over again, that's, that's kind of complete chaos, so to say, right? You're, uh, and that will drive you mad really quickly. So I, I'm not sure if that correlation holds all that well. Um, but I, I, I get what you mean. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, yeah, I'm just, it's so difficult to, to find actual metrics uh, in, in the realms of human action. Yeah, yeah Just, yeah. you know, because there are infinite options always. Yes. So how are you going to number the options? Can you even do that, right? right. Is, is that even the right wake? Like, you, you know, can you even count that set of things here? Um, so, which, which gets me, there's this question I have. It's like, what is the best proxy metric for human flourishing because it ultimately that's the whole point of markets right it's to increase the human standard of living if you will but what is the right metric for that and i think mises labels you know just basically accumulating more capital per person is directionally where you want to go i don't know if that's quantifiably like that's purely the whole metric we want to look at but is that then, uh, this is kind of complicated, but like to back into a proxy metric for freedom, we would say that a modern man today is more free than a caveman by virtue of the options he has at his disposal. I, I know there's a lot of nuance here. Let's just say the a guy that's a rich guy, let's say even the top 1% economically in the world today has a lot more options in terms of space, you know, how he spends his time, where he's going to go, uh, entertainment, you know, cuisine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He has just a plethora of more options. Is that optionality then reflected in his GDP per capita, capital per capita that is uh, measurably superior to the caveman that has whatever his stick and his uh, surroundings. Yeah, I, th I think that this is a very like fundamentally flawed way of of looking at it for for numerous reasons. Uh, for for one, like things like the the GDP, right? These aggregate numbers mm -hmm. fail on on methodological approach, right? Yeah. A nation state has no capital at all. Only individuals inside a specific regional area have capital, right? So mm. that's that's why this level of analysis fails. Um, the the other thing is um, somewhat of an, an aggregate of prices, so or, or 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 an aggregate of capital, you said, right? But then the question is how how do you quantify the capital? Mm. Right? And and the way that we usually use or quantify things in economic calculation is is with prices, mm -hmm. uh, but what are prices actually right prices are not the value of a good mm -hmm. right they are not um as menger said right subjective marginal values is where mm -hmm. it's at 
right? A good has no intrinsic value whatsoever. Goods are only useful as far as they solve a problem for humans, right? right? As, as long as you can use a good in order to satisfy your, your end goals, uh, that's when it's useful. Um, and a price is not the exact same amount that the good is valuable, right? Um, in, in fact, a price, a price and a free exchange indicates different values for each goods. Right. right? If, if, if I'm a merchant selling steak for Bitcoin and Robert has Bitcoin and he wants steak, well, then he values steak more than the amount of Bitcoin and I value the amount of Bitcoin more than the steak yeah. that I'm giving up. Right? So there's the inherent inequality. So the price is not at all a measure of the value itself. But the price would be the neutral third party observing that exchange and quantifying those things as equal, right? No, but but we cannot say that these things are equal because oh, if they were understood. equal, yes, right, they, then no, tra no trade would happen at all. Right. So what we're saying, you know, and it might be that let's say, okay, you know, uh, the, the classical thing, two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. Isn't 10,000 Bitcoin a bit too much for the pizzas? Um, well, you know, for, for the merchant, it's for sure not mm -hmm. too much. Right? If you get paid more, that's better. Mm -hmm. right? But maybe the merchant would have sold also at 9,000 per mm -hmm. two pizzas, right? Or 8,000. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for Laszlo, of course, well, yes, paying less is better than paying more. Mm -hmm. right? So if, if he would have paid uh, 7,000, that would have been prefer preferable to the 10,000. Mm -hmm. right? um, and, and maybe he would have still done that. And it's just that throughout all this negotiation, they ended up at the uh, 10K Bitcoin per two pizzas. Mm -hmm. So the price, though, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the objective appraisal, I think is the term Mises would use, of the value. I understand that the individual, the, the counterparties to the trade, there's an inequality of exchange between them. Each one values the thing received more than the thing given up. But the neutral third party observing that exchange would now equate two pizzas to 10,000 Bitcoin, right? That was the last trade that cleared on the market. So that's the price, you know, 5,000 Bitcoin per pizza, if you will, in this scenario. So is there a way then to quantify the capital stock of the world in a price in a way that would be suitable to Mises' assertion that we need to have more capital stock per person. What I'm trying to get at here is, is there a way, and I know we shouldn't be thinking in metrics, but you almost need them to compare, you know, this economy versus that economy, which one was more successful. Um, are there metrics that, that enable that? Um, I, I, I don't think so. Um, because again, prices. This makes it really hard to sell to the public then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like pr prices indicate whether something is more or less valuable. Right. So, and this is what's used by entrepreneurs in calculation of the, of the resource allocation, right? When you know that gold is more valuable than tin, right? Yeah. Then you can choose to use tin in your construction rather than, than gold, mm -hmm. right? So what, what, what we calculate with prices is not the exact aggregate or total value of something, but more the, the, the marginal difference in, in, in usability or, or value or like, like yeah, valuability. Mm -hmm. So what is more or less valuable, right? And 
um, you know, you, and I think you will also see that if you see, you know, the, the aggregate sum of the capital, like what, like if you measure the, the, the price differences of different value of different goods in, in money, and you kind of add them all up together, then the money becomes meaningless. You know, it's, it's just hundred percent of the capital goods equal hundred percent of the money. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that like, that's just the same. Um, while you, uh, it's, it's tough to say, but I, well, I think the, the, the capital stock, I mean, it could in theory at least exceed the money because what we have today, call it 500 trillion in global wealth, but we have a hundred trillion global M2. This is pre COVID these numbers that I'm roughly approximating here but so long as the exchanges on the total capital summed to an amount you know it could exceed global gdp effectively is what i guess what i'm trying to get at because you can have a stock of capital that's more valuable than the annual output or more valuable than the the money supply itself yeah there's then there's one other point that comes in here and uh irving fisher brings us up in the uh, velocity of money, it's called in English, um, uh, that where, uh, that you can get this kind of prosperity number by taking the amount of money that was transferred um, and the, the times that it was transferred, right? So if we both would make an exchange of I give you a Lambo for 10 Bitcoin and then you give me the Lambo back for 10 Bitcoin and then I give you a Lambo for 10 Bitcoin again, all of a sudden that's 30 Bitcoin being exchanged. And so that's the that that's one of the metrics of this velocity of money concept. I think it's it's fundamentally flawed, and mm -hmm. and it's not it's not useful to look at it like that, right? Because there's not new capital created just because we shift the ownership title left and right. Mm -hmm. um, like this this is just you know left pocket right pocket in in in, mm -hmm. in a sense. So it it doesn't the 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 quantity or the sum of the prices of all the exchanges in the economy. Is, is not really a useful metric uh, in the sense. Um, what, what is useful is, is the capital deployed in the production of resources, mm. right? But how much that valuable, how much that is valuable cannot be expressed with one single price, right? right? Because again, socialism doesn't work. We need to have the free exchange in order to, to, to get, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Yes. Can it? Understood. Can it be a prey? So I guess what you're saying is there would there would need to be an appraisal on global capital stock. It's not going to be a derived, a market derived number. This would be a like a third party appraisal on global capital, or is that? I mean, that's not feasible either. No, I I just don't think that it is method methodologically doable in a completely correct statement interesting you, you can you can make approximations yeah that i think that in this small part of the known economy and right, we have seen this number of of investments in capital goods yeah. and and this much of production sure you can do that especially on the level of the firm yes but on the on the entire macro level of the entire economy um i i think that this this like the 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 frame of view does not make sense mm. You know? so, so GDP, we know it's broken methodologically and so on. Is it the best thing we've got right now, even though it's broken? Uh, because my point here is that, so we're trying to educate people about, hey, 
Keynesian economics, no bueno. You need to look at these, this other frame, other way of looking at the world, another economic lens through which to view the world. But it seems very difficult to get them off of an objectively quantifiable number. People are so ingrained mm-hmm. with this GDP per capita, you know, income number, what whatever. If we if there's no alternative metric for them to look at, then it seems very difficult to pull them off of that. Exactly. And and that's how how deep the disagreement between the now mainstream uh, Keynesian view and the the, the Austrian uh, tradition goes. Like this mm-hmm. Methodenstreit was a serious and and high quality and high caliber debate. Right? And it, it was not at all easy to, to go through there. And there is this this obvious divide between collectivism mm. and and individualism. Right. Uh, some people think that you can make a single aggregate number that represents the aggregate prosperity of the aggregate economy. Mm. It's collectivism. Yes. But that is not the right level of analysis, and it 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 will not lead you to true or useful or maybe to lose useful approximate approximations, but for sure not to to absolute truth. Right. Interesting. That seems like a really tough problem. I'm going to have to revisit that book, The Tao of Capital. I feel like he had, he's a very heavy Austrian. Have you read that book by Spitzkohl, no, I think? I don't think so. He's a very heavy Austrian lens, but he does, he has in, investing methodologies based on the Austrian outlook that do relate to some metrics. He has like the the Mises multiplier and some other things. So anyways, Okay, maybe one more topic here. How would you define ethics? I think ethics, clearly we're talking about the the title of the book, The Ethics of Liberty. So we've talked about freedom and liberty. What, how does ethics fit into this broader tapestry of uh, creating a free or liberated society. Yeah, that's a that's a good question, um, and I would argue that that economics is about how about whether or not a certain pathway will lead you to a goal that you have set out to choose, and then it's it's value free in the sense that I don't judge you about whether you whether the goal you chose is correct. I'm just judging you whether the path that you set out will actually get you there. The means selected. Exactly. Yep. And and ethics, I think, is more about what should be your end goal. Mm. What should be that guiding star that you want to reach ultimately? Right? Or maybe you can go even deeper against something that Peterson points out, that you should have a guiding star in the first place. Right? That that might mm. be the first axiomatic statement in ethics is that there is something good to work towards mm. and there is something preferable than than now. Like uh, you know, there's there and there is a difference. And you as the individual can can find out the difference between something that is good and something that is bad. Right. And I now where I'm, where I'm not sure how to put this into is the difference between ethics and morals. And I think that morals is 
even more of a subjective uh, kind of trait that you know your morals might be to uh, I don't know never buy B cash because it's trash, right? That might be your morals. Your your mm. thing to do is to not buy B cash, right? Mm. Um, while that doesn't make for good ethics, right? That that is not a, a law that ought to apply to everyone. Like you should not have the power to force everyone to not buy Bcash or to punish anyone who did buy Bcash. Right? That's it's not a universal ethic. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the 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 difference between moral is that it is something that the individual sets for himself as the highest goal. Mm-hmm. And ethics is then maybe what is a goal that in society all can all can or even have to agree to be the highest goal. And yeah, and, and in the past, this was mainly done via religion, right? Religion mm-hmm. was to set those guiding ethical principles of how as a large society ought to behave, right? Or, or, or the people in society, right? Um, and again, the, the, the brilliance of, of Rothbard's book is to establish this prioritization of the end itself, mm-hmm. not via religious or spiritual means as Mises did before him, but instead with the purely rational and uh, uh, rational analysis of starting with the self-evident axiom or principle that the individual acts. Right? That just with this one assumption, we can prove that there are some actions that are good and some that are bad. And that striving towards the good action is superior than going towards the bad ones. I'll read an excerpt here from the book that may pertain to this. Rothbard says, quote, the assertion of an order of natural laws discoverable by reason is by itself neither pro nor anti-religious. And this is another excerpt. Um, When he maintains that natural law is that body of rules which man is able to discover by the use of his reason, he does nothing but restate the scholastic notion of a rational foundation of ethics. So I guess this kind of begs the question. I mean, Rothbard is portraying reason as something objective to humans, which seems reasonable. (laughs) Um, How then, and I guess he's making the point that ethics are something discoverable through reason. So there's some objective ethics out there, if you will, that we can discover through human reason, something that applies to all of us because human reason is universal. How then do we define and understand reason, which is this, you know, it kind of lays it out as this core quality that separates man from animal. I, I think it's, it's the logos, right? That, mm. that, that crazy computer capability to transform input into output, right? The, the, the trivium basically to take in external information and knowledge um, to to uh, understand whether it is uh, correct or not, right? uh, the, the the knowledge part, and then to act 
upon what we have come to understand to be true, the wisdom part, the, the grammar part of the trivium. Um, I think with, with this mindset, um, it, it can be explained. And now, how, or how, how do I tie this back into your original question? Like how, what is, what is that rationality? Um, or, or is it self-evident in humans? Um, that's, that's in part what we assume, right? We assume that people act, right? right? That's the base assumption. And action is defined clearly not as reflexive behavior, yes, but as rational, contemplated action. Right? Yes. And, and, and now this does not mean that we exclude non-rational behavior, right? It's just that we acknowledge that the important pieces of, of yeah, or again, to say that phrase, I've said way too much, but the level of analysis here mm. is, you know, how can we build a cathedral? And you cannot build a cathedral with reflexive behavior. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not j- just going to happen. There needs to be a deliberate approach to, to plan the allocation of those resources, which entails a articulation of the highest value preferences that we have. Right? So that it's, it's kind of that, it's not that all actions are rational or that uh, like there's only the homo economicus who always right. only right. acts rationally. That's, that's not what, what we mean here. It's that if we want to analyze a, the vastly complex market economy, uh, then, then we need to start uh, at, at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and th- so the ability to observe patterns in the world and determine what is an adequate means and perhaps even selecting the ends as well, those both kind of fall under the rubric of reason. I get maybe the selecting the ends is more in the moral domain and reasons more about how the, how, like, how do you get there Exactly. versus selecting the aim is more of a value that you can't remove value from the selecting of an aim. Actually, the selecting of an aim is your value basically, right? You're saying I value this thing. That's why I'm going towards it. Yeah. Right. Just to move towards something is a observable indication that it is valuable. Yes. Right? So. It, Sorry, go and, ahead. And, by, and by the way, Rothbard brings up in the early part of the book this, this scenario where two men are, are on a lonely island and, and one is eating berries that he thinks will you know, sustain him and, mm-hmm. and you know, give him energy, while the other person knows that these poisons uh, uh, are, are uh, uh, sorry, these berries are poisonous. Right? And so he yells out, don't eat them. These berries are poisonous. Right? And then the other person stops to eat them. Mm. Now, what have we established here is that life is inherently valuable, right? It's the thing towards that that we should go towards to, right? We should not go Mm. towards death, right? Mm. But um, this is an an ethic that that is assumed by both parties, right? That life is something to be treasured and that taking actions that prematurely end life especially when those actions are taken unknowingly, mm-hmm. right? that that is a bad thing. 
And that is an objective ethic, as you say, right? This is mm. two men agreeing that walking towards something is better than walking towards something else. That's a great analogy. And I would say that makes a lot of sense until you throw in the wrinkle. Maybe one of the men is Republican and the other man is Democrat, or they have some other divergent aims between them. Then perhaps one of them actually has an incentive to see the other one die, to not tell him about the toxic berries, which gets me into this question of politics. Is politic, what, first of all, what is politics? How do we define it? Is it reasonable that we're political? Is it reasonable that perhaps this, you know, to use that example, that one man may let the other man eat the toxic berries because he thinks it's um, in his own interest? I personally like um, Franz Oppenheimer's definition uh, of the political and economic means, which mm. he defines as the only two ways to, to allocate scarce resources. So we have the economical means, which is mutual beneficial exchange. Both parties voluntarily agree uh, to do a certain transaction. And because the other part, or because you value the good that the other party has more, and that's the, the case for both people, right? they are by definition, better off after the trade uh, than before, or they perceive to be better off mm. after the trade than before. Um, while uh, the, so this is a net positive, right? Mm -hmm. and, and again, we don't know how much of a net positive value increase has happened, right? We cannot say the capital increased by 12 right. utils. It's not right? measurable. It doesn't work. Yep. Exactly. It's not measurable. More but wants we were satisfied, basically. Exactly. It's yeah. better than it was before. Yes. That's what we can say. Yes. Um, and then we have the political means, uh, which is basically that either under direct aggression uh, or violence or the uh, threat to initiate violence, right? Coercion uh, was applied in order to uh, allocate these scarce resources. So we are no longer with voluntary and mutual beneficial exchange, but here we have one party applying force or violence to take the property of someone else that Oppenheimer defines as the political means. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a very useful way to looking at things, right? And it's, it's not as wishy-washy as, uh, you know, Democrat or Republican or left and right, which by the way, Rothbard wrote a phenomenal book in his early years about left and right and the prospect for liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, here he echoes that point that it's, uh, that's not, useful to look at things because that gets defined like crazy you know left or liberal uh was in in the past you know uh the freedom loving tradition mm -hmm. uh, well nowadays it's it's hardcore communism um so it, drawing that line of differentiation uh, uh between the people who steal and the people who do not steal uh is much more useful not just on an economic level but of course also on an ethical level mm. So what then, I, lo I love that, that dichotomy between the economical and political. So economical premised on voluntary exchange, political premised on involuntary exchange, essentially. Yep. Could we then say through that lens that political action is crime? Because I think in the book, I'll read the excerpt, the definition of crime crime can then be defined and properly analyzed as a violent invasion or aggression 
against the just property of another individual, including his property in his own person. So it seems to me that the political is inextricably linked to the criminal exactly. in these definitions. By definition, all the time, 100% of the time, blanket statements, politicians steal from you. They are criminals and unethical people. But politics, at least at the micro scale, are just an ineradicable part of human nature, right? We're always politicking or making allegiances and pacts and whatnot. So is it more, are there, are there, hmm. I, I would argue that this is very much part of the human condition mm -hmm. that we are experiencing a world where coercion is the norm and where everyone is stealing from everyone, you know, just by the fact of using money by the mm -hmm. way, you know, mm -hmm. and going into debt and increasing the money supply and, and all mm -hmm. of all of the craziness that's going on there. Summary, everyone is uh, is cheating on everyone. Everyone is lying to everyone. Everyone yes. is stealing from everyone. Yes. Right? The, the beautiful communist uh, state. <laughs> and, uh, but, but yeah, that is, I, I, I do believe, and I, 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 yeah, I think this is uh, an almost spiritual belief, right? That this is a condition and not our nature. That it right. is, in fact, our nature to be peaceful uh, and to cooperate and to reasonably come to the understanding that cooperation is the best strategy for everyone. Mm. Right? Th that this is, is, th that is in our power as human beings. And therefore, I think it is in our nature that, well, at least that, that, that we contemplate this. I'm, I'm not sure if it's actually in our nature to to resist the temptation of the easy benefit that stealing from others might offer you. Mm. Um, but I do believe that we have only come to the heights that we have as a civilization because of our reasoning and our ability to understand the beauty of division of labor and the free market process maybe not even understand in on a conscious level but at least to act it out on a, on a metaphorical level or, yes. or, or archetypal level at least so this core i don't know if it's a principle or axiom of rothbard's the do not steal right which you made this great point when we first did a podcast together you could sort of compress all of the thou shalt not the ten commandments into one it was like don't steal once you conceive of property as yourself you are your own property that anyone that violence is theft right violence is someone transgressing against your property so you can kind of um distill everything down into don't steal but to your point it's like we're not sure if it's within our human nature to resist the free benefit of theft. So it is then incumbent upon us through technological means, I guess, to make things harder to steal. That's sort of, that's what property rights, government, Bitcoin, these things are all designed to make things harder to steal, basically to save us from ourselves. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good point. Like that, that humans are, and that's somewhat of the original sin aspect too, mm. right? That, that people are just weak and that when the right circumstances emerge, you will turn into a monster. Mm. And 
that includes stealing from people, right? That mm-hmm. that is what that's one of the aspects of of what being a monster means. Mm. And we all have the capability of doing that, and we all do it, and we all enjoy doing it, mm. right? Especially when it gives us short-term consequences that are greater or or at least so you know it's a time preference thing when we steal something from someone today we get a benefit for it right now right we yes. get to use the resource right. that we stole and there's only a potential of 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 um repercussions in the future mm. right but that might be a year's time so i get to enjoy right. the use of the good for one year which is more valuable than you know uh, potentially getting it yes. in the future so there there might be a time preference aspect here and that then therefore again as we as we see the time preference of of people increasing uh that this is 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 shown it is evident in a higher rate of crime um while if people uh while when there is a lower rate of crime that might indicate that these individuals have a lower time preference mm-hmm. as well yeah you're touching on something so fundamental here where i th- i for a long time intuited that there is this reciprocity between man and tool so we could say in this situation the harder money is to steal the more the less likely the more moral we're likely to become because you just it's just not as effective as rewarding to steal but you could also say the more moral man becomes the more he's considering you know a broader set of slices of himself across time right his 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 self stretched out temporally he's considering he has a lower time preference he's considering more and more of his future self in any one action so he's also less likely to steal so there's this it seems like there's this feedback loop between morality and and technology they were constantly navigating um to where maybe yeah. you know we even have to kind of dream these things up in a way and this this goes into some of peterson's work where he says private property rights themselves are premised on a judeo-christian ethos right the yes. fact that that jesus was saying you know tell truth to power hold the sovereignty of the individual above all else that is that is the essence in property rights effectively so we had to have this you know and back then this was not uh, not part of the socioeconomic fabric, let's say, um, but now it is. So it's like we have to almost dream these things up, and then we pull them into reality and assemble them into a technology that that represents the dream. I, I'm way out on a limb here, but no, no, it's it's funny that you bring it up because as as you bring up that that aspect of of mind versus technology, kind of, um, I'm I was reminded of the the first principle. Um, uh, of 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 alchemy basically uh mm. which which is mentalism right mm. that that all is of the mind and the mm. mind is all and and this is i i think it rings very true on on many levels but also on the on the austrian praxeological uh viewpoint uh because because you as i mentioned previously the what the entrepreneur does is to envision a better situation first right so you're in a point of suffering right now and in your mind you can conjure up 
these and and play out these numerous different realities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A- and you can go through them and see which one you think might turn out in which way right this is all imagination that that comes out of your mind it's like uh, a simulator out, 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 <laughs> exactly like a simulator yes it's it's and that's the logos basically right and you can die a million deaths in your thoughts before you then act out that one strategy that you think is the best right but every action has to start in the mind right so that that uh, as that first principle of of mind uh, like mindfulness or or not mindfulness but uh, mentalism yeah mentalism exactly that's really interesting uh well that's a whole another rabbit hole for another day but yeah i've read a little bit about alchemy and i find it very interesting how many parallels there are between the properties of the philosopher's stone and bitcoin 